This is Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill, and I'm here with Ken Jacobson. Hey, Mike. Today we feature Stanley Nelson, director of Attica. This is a documentary about the prison rebellion at Attica in 1971, in which the prisoners, after years of inhumane treatment, took over the prison for four and a half days before the rebellion was mercilessly crushed by the authorities. What really struck me about this is, in many ways, it's a very traditional documentary. It has interviews with prisoners, with other people who were involved in the negotiating around the rebellion, with some of the families, with the guards who had been taken hostage in the prison, and then archival footage. But for some reason, it's very effective and very powerful. I agree with you. I think it's just the rigor and the commitment to finding every piece of archival footage and interviewing, say, like multiple members of a hostage's surviving family members, not just one, but multiple, and interviewing multiple former prisoners and multiple members of this so-called observers committee. And so he just has such rich material to draw upon. Yeah, I think it's the thoroughness. I think it is very artfully stitched together in a way which does not call attention to the art as a score that, again, is very powerful, but doesn't call attention to itself, except when it's highlighting the prison alarm, which does stand out and really shocks you, really gets you back on your heels. The other thing I would say about the film that's so powerful is that because it is chronological, it's driving toward that day five when the takeover ends and the prison is violently retaken by the authorities. They stretch out time and they spend a great deal of attention on not only the events of day five, but specific moments toward the end of what happened. And you really just feel moment by moment the tension and the pain and the agony of what these prisoners were going through. It's intense. I think it's a good point, even though the narrative structure, again, is classical, it's day by day, it's uh, linear, it's very powerful. And as Stanley notes, it allows them to show the shifting emotional tides experienced by the prisoners as they move from exuberance to concern to resignation. Attica recently had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. And I also wanted to mention that the film's co-director and producer is Tracy A. Curry. If there were a Mount Rushmore of documentary, Stanley Nelson would surely be on it. He's had at least 10 films premiere at Sundance. He's a MacArthur Genius Fellow, has received nearly every award in broadcasting, including five Primetime Emmy Awards, Lifetime Achievement Awards from the Emmys, the Peabody Awards, and the International Documentary Association. In 2013, Stanley was honored with the National Humanities Medal by President Obama. I think it's fair to say that Stanley's the leading documentarian of the African-American experience. In addition, in 1998, with his wife, Marcia Smith, Stanley co-founded Firelight Media, a nonprofit organization that supports and develops nonfiction filmmakers of color and is truly a game-changing organization in the field. Among the films that Stanley's made over the course of his more than 30-year career include his first film, $2 in a Dream, the story of Madam C.J. Walker, 1989, The Black Press, Soldiers Without Swords, 1999, The Murder of Emmett Till, 2003, A Place of Our Own, 2004, 
which is a personal favorite of mine and Stanley's one personal film, Freedom Riders in 2010 and Freedom Summer in 2013. And then most recently, The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution, 2015, Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, 2019, and earlier this year, Tulsa Burning, the 1921 race massacre with Marco Williams, who was one of our guests on Top Docs. Attica can be seen in theaters in select cities. We'll be playing on Thursday, November 4th at 7.30 at the Castro in San Francisco for Doc Stories San Francisco. And it will be available on Showtime starting November 6th. If you want to help us reach more lovers of documentaries, please follow us, like us, even make a comment or share us on social media. Coming up, you'll hear Ken talking to Stanley Nelson about his documentary, Attica. Hi, everybody. I'm Ken Jacobson. Welcome to Top Docs. We're here with Stanley Nelson. Welcome to the podcast, Stanley. It's great to have you. Why do you make documentary films? Because it's probably the only thing I know how to do. And I've been making docs for a long time. I still love it. And and I, I love the fact that it takes up so much of my brain. So many different skills are used in, in making docs. I'm just as in love with it as I've ever been. Can you provide us with a brief two-line log line for Attica? In 1971, the prisoners at at Attica took over the prison 250 miles from New York City. It was the largest prison rebellion in the history of the United States, and they held the prison for five days. I wanted to start off with just language and terminology, and where better to start than Wikipedia? So Wikipedia (laughs) refers to, to the events in September 1971 at Attica Prison as the Attica Prison Rebellion, also known as the Attica Prison Massacre, Attica Uprising, or Attica Prison Riot. These terms are somewhat fraught, different emphasis on different aspects. When you say Attica, what are you referring to? What does Attica mean to you? We're referring to the Prison Rebellion. I think that's the best language without going into a much longer and involved title for what happened, but we refer to it as the Attica Rebellion. So, Stanley, you have a a long and storied career. You've directed more than two dozen documentaries. Most of these are historical documentaries, and most of these are historical documentaries focused on the African-American experience. Some of these films focus on topics or events that have not been the focus of previous films, while others have been. With a film like Attica, which has been the subject of other documentaries, why do you want to tell the story? I feel like the, the, the most recent Attica film probably was 30 years ago or so. And, and a lot has happened since then. A lot of people have come forward. The technology certainly has changed. And, and, and I think that given more time, not only between Attica and, and now, but also given more time and resources to make the film, we could make a film that was very different from what had been made before. I don't think anybody has spent the time and has the expertise to collect archival stills and archival footage that we have. And and that's played out in in the film. The archival material in the film is just astounding. There's no other word for it. I try to tell people about it. I just, you know, end up saying, guys, you just got to see the film. When you begin a project, what is it about a topic that speaks to you that says, that's something I want to dig into, spend years on, 
I always say that that if, if filmmaker tells you that there's one reason why they're making a film, they're probably lying. You know, there's a lot of reasons why I make the film. I have to go a little background. You know, my first film that I made, $2 in a Dream, of Madam C.J. Walker, took me seven years to make. The next film I, I made, The Black Press, Those Are Toy Swords, took another seven years to make. I want to make sure that it's a film that I feel like justifies taking up what might be seven to 10 years of my life. We do a lot of historical films, but I want to do things that resonate today. You know, I, I'm not interested in, in films that kind of live in what I call a historical bubble, where you see a film and you're like, okay, that's great. Let's go eat a hamburger, you know, make films that, that, that resonate. And I think Attica really does. You know, and then you have to look at, at the story be told without doing massive recreations. You could all, always hire Denzel Washington and make a film about anything, but I don't have that kind of resources and probably I'm not that good of a director. So you want to make sure that the resources are there. You know, when we started Attica, Attica took place 50 years ago. And you figure that the people in that yard were, were a lot of them were age 20 to 25. They're older, but they're like 70 to 75. And, and there were about, about a thousand people, a thousand prisoners in the yard. So we should be able to find a bunch of people who have great memories, who never talked about it before. One of the things that we didn't know we would find, there was an observer committee. The inmates invited people in, famous people, politicians, newspaper people, to observe what was going on. And they were older, but we found a bunch of them, and they're incredible in the film because they remember it like it was yesterday, just like the prisoners remember it like it was yesterday. And we also found a bunch of hostage families, families of the men who were held hostage, and also a couple of National Guard who went in on the last day. This was a similar event in all of their lives. We ask them one question and they're right back there. We were able to say, okay, this is a film, not only that, that we want to make, that has to be made, but that we can make. And that we can do something special because we have the elements that it takes to make the film. And those different elements are extremely vivid, the interviews and the archival. I'm just curious, to what extent as a filmmaker in general or on this project in particular, do you take your lead from either, say, the archival footage, the interviews or the existing literature? From all three, probably the literature, the least. We go where the interviews take us, but also, you know, if we have archival footage and, and we know we've got it, then we ask questions about it. So there's incredible archival footage of the families of the hostages outside the walls of the prison, crying and fainting. So we made sure that we asked the hostage families about that and the observers about that. If people answer questions in a certain way, we try to find footage about that. But we're also trying to find every single piece of footage that was shot. We're trying to find every single still that was shot. I constantly tell the team that I'm working with, just find everything. Don't think about money. Don't think about anything except finding every single thing that you can find. If we complete this film, and two years from now, I see a picture somewhere of Attica that we didn't have, I'm going to call you up on the phone in the middle of the night and, and berate you. And so you don't want that. You don't want me calling up in the middle of the night. So let's just find everything we can. Since you brought up the archival and the labor-intensive search that you went on to find everything, what were some of the either new things that you uncovered that maybe never been shown before or some things that maybe were shown once or twice but basically have been lost? 
One of, one of the newsmen we talked to, Stuart Dan, who was there, we were talking to him and, and we asked him, you know, did he have any footage or know where any footage was? And he said, oh yeah, I, I got my clips. And he went down his basement and pulled out reels of his clips from Attica. The New York State surveillance tapes are amazing. As soon as the prison was taken, the New York police officers and, and corrections officers went up in the towers of, of Attica with one of the first portable cameras, what was called a porta pack. Sony put out this porta pack and it was a black and white video camera and it was attached to a huge tape recorder. And that was like the first time that, you know, consumers could just buy a, a video camera and use it. And they went up in the tower and they shot from the tower the whole time, the five days of the prisoner takeover. It's amazing footage. At one point, their lens will only go a certain length. So they put the, the gun sight in front of the lens and they're filming through the gun sight. And it's actually real footage that you see as they're panning across the inmates that have taken over and their inmates are in the crosshairs of, of this gun sight. You know, it's just a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. One of the amazing things is I, I don't think they knew how to disconnect the mic. The camera had a built-in mic. And so they're talking the, through the whole time. Like, you know, hey, that's the biggest, blackest, ugliest Negro gentleman I've ever seen in my life. Stuff like that. The, the guards are on the are on the towers now ready to invade. They have 270 rifles. And they're just talking through the whole thing. From doing other historical documentaries, I think that so many times people, when an Attica anniversary comes up, the news director and station might say, oh gosh, the Attica, the, the, the anniversary of the rebellion is happening you know, next Friday, pull some clips. And they pull the same clips that they pulled last year and they show and they talk over it and that's that. But nobody says, you know, let's go back to the warehouse and find everything that was shot. All the footage that was shot. And we did that. We went, you know, to ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS, which were the only stations around at that, that time. But we also went to the local stations, you know, the Buffalo station, because Buffalo is the nearest city to Attica. And, and any place still we, we could possibly go to find footage and stills that may not have been seen. And then at the very end, we realized, okay, wait, they were shooting on 16 millimeter. The whole film was done in the time of COVID. So a lot of the archives were closed or one day a week or two days a week. So we had to wait, but we got the networks to go back to their warehouses and pull the original 16 millimeter film and retransfer it for us so that we had fresh transfers. The film looks incredible because 16 millimeter film doesn't really deteriorate like videotape. So it's just like it was shot yesterday on 16 millimeter film. It's stunning and it really enhances the experience of watching the film and pulling you into the story. I wanted to get into the story now and you do take mostly a chronological story taking us through the five days of the rebellion. What were you trying to establish in terms of story themes and character over the day one and day two? I, I think that there's so many reasons to do it that way, especially for this story, because things changed every day. And we wanted to, to talk about how things changed from what the inmates call the exuberance of the first day to the second day where the state has agreed to 28 of the, their 30 demands. And it looks like things are going to work out to the third day when Quinn dies, the guard that they had beaten so badly, and he's in the hospital, but he dies. And at that point, everything changes. 
because now they've murdered somebody. If we started with day three and, and you know, mix things around, I don't think you get the progression that you get in the day structure in the fact that every day was something different. And every day the feelings changed. And every day something was something new. And every day there was a way that this thing could have ended peacefully, but it never happened. You don't have a lot of needle drops in the film of original songs, but I forget whether it's day one or day two. You do bring in the James Brown song, Give It Up, Turn It Loose. I think at some point we thought that we would put more needle drops. We got lists of the top 100 R&B songs from you know, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73. Let's hear the music of that time. It, it just kind of didn't fit anywhere else. We used the persuasions on the first night acapella because one of the inmates talks about how they were singing at, at, at night, so we used that. But, you know, James Brown, I mean, I love James Brown. It just seemed to fit. It was a song from the time, and it's just a, a, a pump of energy into the film, and, and it reflects what the inmates are saying about how they were feeling. They were feeling some freedom. And they were feeling like that this whole thing was going to make a change and, and that it was something big. And we wanted to, to try to echo that exuberance with the music in the film. Well, it worked nicely. One of the keys to understanding the Attica story comes from interviews with some of the former prisoners in which we learned that some of the leaders, including Elliot L.D. Barkley and Frank Big Black Smith, had a plan for reforming the brutal, inhumane conditions inside the prison and in the prison system itself. It's about seizing control in order to bring about reform. These guys were reformers. Reform is very central. The film starts, you know, we drop you right in the middle of the rebellion, and that's on purpose. And then we go back after 15 minutes or so and, and tell you why they rebel from little things like one roll of toilet paper a month and, 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 and feeding them pork. They were fed on 21 cents a meal to beatings over and over again by the guards, you know, the goon squad that every single inmate describes in the same way. They thought that not only would they rebel at Attica, but they would also, that rebellion would also help change the prison system throughout the country. One of the things that we cut from the film is that they had tried over and over again to go to the administration to make changes. And, and the administration, they wouldn't listen. And they, they would be punished for even asking. If you raised your voice, then you were subjected to a beating and they'd come get you at night and beat you. They had tried other things. They had tried to talk but the prison officials didn't talk to them. It's not like you have a lot of choices when you're a prisoner. You don't, you don't have a lot of choices. And so they felt that they were pushed to the wall. And I think that, um, you know, we do a pretty good job at, at talking about the times. You know, they were listening to Malcolm X. Black Panthers were coming into jail and, and preaching that, that gospel. And George Jackson, who was in prison and, and had written books from prison, was murdered in prison. And at that point, they just broke. The national context is certainly important to this story and does affect what's going on in the prison. It struck me also that there was a national context on the other side as well. When we see toward the end of the film that one guard after they, quote unquote, take control of the yard, yells white power. And clearly there's a context of not just Nixon and law and order, but George Wallace and his campaign. I think that people have to be reminded that, that Nixon won on, on this whole ticket of law and order. If you've seen his uh, campaign ads, he's like law and order, law and order, law and order, and very scary tactics. And that's what he won on. Nelson Rockefeller, the governor 
of New York, who ultimately controls the prison system in New York. He wanted to be president. Nelson Rockefeller had gotten everything else. He's a billionaire. He's governor of New York. What world is left to conquer? He wants to be president. But he was thought of as too soft on crime. And he's talking constantly to Nixon, and he's being guided by Nixon. Fortunately, his paranoid self, Nixon taped all the phone calls. You hear the phone calls between Nelson Rockefeller and Nixon, where Nixon is guiding him and egging him on to take back the prison at all costs. I don't think those phone calls come as a shock, but it's one thing to think that based on what we know about those folks. But for you, as the filmmaker, actually hearing those phone calls, what was your reaction? As a filmmaker, it was all goody. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was great. I mean, as a friend said, you know, as soon as we mentioned Nixon, he was like, oh, no. Look, it's unbelievable where the white guard after the retaking starts yelling white power. It's unbelievable. But it, it's more unbelievable the president of the United States, the first word when he's told about it is, was it the blacks? He says, did any white people get killed or was it all black people? That's the president of the United States. With all his faults, we don't usually think of Nixon as a racist. Like, that's not the first thing that, that would come to your mind. Within the film, over and over again, there's this kind of casual racism. In, in some ways, it's shocking. And in some ways, maybe it's more shocking to me because I, I'm an African-American. So people don't talk about like that around me. I don't know what they talk about around you, but they don't talk about it around me like that. It's totally shocking. And it, it comes from, again, the bottom of the prison guards who are not rich people living in a very rural place where there are no Black people to the president of the United States who is on the phone and thinks that nobody will ever hear him saying these things. I wanted to ask about the Observers Committee. Once we're into day one and day two and the Observers Committee enters the picture and their role becomes a big part of this story. In watching this, it struck me, this is a really unusual situation. 30 people brought inside a maximum security prison during the course of a prison takeover. Is this the only time that something like this has happened, as far as you could tell? Was this as surprising to you in researching the film as it was to me in watching it? I think it's a totally unique situation. But again, part of the reason why the whole thing is so unique is because the prisoners had 30-something hostages. You know, they had the guards. And, and they're in this yard on ground level, and they have the guards, and, and the guards sat in a circle, blindfolded. And at the same time, law enforcement is up on the walls, on catwalks, with their guns aimed down at the prisoners for five days. But they can't do anything because they have hostages. And that was what was so different uh, about Attica. They were really trying to save the lives of the guards who were being held hostage, but it didn't work. Another thing that seems different about Attica is the intensive national media attention. We see different layers of that. And you bring us interviews with a couple of reporters, including John Johnson, who's the Black on-camera reporter for ABC. In contrast to that, we also see what the anchors are saying from the news desk. I wanted to get your overview of how the national news media covered the events at Attica. That was one of the central things about the story. And you asked me before what went into cementing my mind in making this story. One of the major things is I found out that the inmates, the prisoners had invited the press in. So they invited the press in almost from the moment that they took over the prison so that the press 
came in as, as protected also observers and with their cameras and filmed the whole thing. You know, and Mike, while they're negotiating back and forth with the prison officials and as the prisoners get up and make speeches, that whole thing was filmed. And so that was really part of it. And I think at that point, in many ways, the press you know, did a good job. They were filming a, a very unique situation and partially because they were there, it kind of held back law enforcement because they were filming the whole thing. But I, again, I think that it's a very astute question because there's a difference in, in the way John Johnson and Stuart Dan and others are reporting at the scene. And then it's very shocking when the anchor says, today, Attica, takeover mostly by blacks it's like what the difference between the subtlety with with which maybe the news would say something like that today and what they said you know in those days at the very end the news in, in many ways let, let the story down because they reported right afterwards that eight guards throats were slit by the prisoners which never happened and john johnson the black reporter who was if people aren't from new york they won't remember what john johnson was like so big time he was like the biggest thing in, in new york he's like the king of new york because he was the only black reporter and he had the afro and he was like dressed in the whole thing john refused to report that you know he said that i didn't see any throats get slit i didn't see anybody with their throat slit I'm not going to report it. And he was really ostracized at ABC News for a long while because he, he refused to report what he didn't see. That's extraordinary because it's his same network in which the anchor desk, Harry Reasoner, is saying the words, and you alluded to them, right after the massacre. In the final hours of the revolt, led primarily by Blacks, the inmates murdered nine of their white hostages. For one, that's a total lie. It didn't happen. And for the other, it's so racially charged and racist. It, it is shocking. But there's so much about this story that's shocking. That was the way it was reported for the first couple of days. And people still believe that. I mean, we talk to people. They're like, oh, yeah, it's not the place where they slit the guards' throats. The people in the town of Attica really still believe it. They refuse to not believe it. The reporting it that way did a great deal of harm. I did want to ask you about the town of Attica, because one of the surprising, really illuminating things in the film is that you do take us inside the town and we learn something about it as basically a company town, because most people or many people in the town had no choice but to work at the prison. We thought from the very beginning we wanted to do as balanced a story as we possibly could. And that was always the intention is to go to the town and talk to the people in the town and get their story. One of the things that, that's really different about this story is in many ways, the hostage families uh, are aligned with the prisoners. Their loved ones were killed and wounded just the same as the prisoners. And they've suffered in, in many of the same ways. Now, for the most part, that doesn't make them any more friendly or sympathetic to the prisoners. Some are, but it also makes them understand that they were wronged by the state in the same way that the prisoners were. And I think it freed them up to tell their story. You interview former prisoners, family members of guards who were killed, members of the Observers Committee, a couple members of the media, and you have two interviews with National Guardsmen. But I don't think we have any interviews except in archival footage with any prison guards or officials. What drove your decision about who to interview and who not to? We wanted to interview everybody. 
And we actually lined up three or four prison guards and, and, and their wives. They had all moved somewhere in Florida. And we lined them all up. And then at the last minute, they said, oh, oh, we looked you up on the internet. We know what kind of films you do. And so we're not going to talk to you. So we tried everything we could to, to, to get them to talk and to persuade them. But in the end, they, they wouldn't. In, in some ways, I'm fine with that as a filmmaker. Because all they would have said is, oh, no, we didn't beat the prisoners. Oh, no, it wasn't that bad. Oh, no. You know, and then we would have had to spend time trying to, you know, even it out. This person said this thing, this person said that. But I think when you see the film, you don't doubt for a minute that what people are telling you is true. Not for one minute. We've had a few screenings now. Nobody came up to me and said, I, I don't believe those prisoners. No, you believe you believe I want to ask about Russell Oswald, the New York Commissioner of Corrections. He does come across as somewhat of a tragic figure. I mean, he's culpable for what he does. Over the course of these five days, at the beginning, he seems to want to resolve this peacefully, and he enters into negotiations with the prisoners. He goes into the yard. But at some point, he changes. Is that just a result of the fact that, as you mentioned on day three, the, the one guard dies or the governor got to him or what happened to Oswald? I think a lot of things happened. I, I think one from the very beginning, you know, the first time you see him on screen, he's just overwhelmed by the whole thing. He's just bumbling. He's overwhelmed. He was thought of a, as a reformer before this thing. It's very, in, in many ways, courageous, you know, that he says, okay, I'm going to go in. I'm going to go in and negotiate with these guys. You know, on the second day, they're like, well, wait a minute, why don't we just hold you? Then we'll have the, the corrections commissioner. He's a pretty brave guy, but I, I think, you know, he's overwhelmed by the situation. Who knows who Nelson Rockefeller is whispering in his year, you know, backed up by Nixon. I think certainly when Quinn dies, it changes everything. The relatives outside are calling for blood. Why don't they just do something and take back the prison? And by the end, they're yelling and screaming, and, and you see that very clearly. So I think there's a lot of things going on pushing Oswald. He's overwhelmed. And I don't think that he can stop it. I don't think that he has the power to overrule Nelson Rockefeller, and certainly Nelson Rockefeller back by the United States. And he does give them one more day. I'm going to give you one more day to try to negotiate something. But we haven't talked about this much, but the prisoners wanted amnesty. And that was what the whole thing hinged on, that they wanted amnesty. And they wanted amnesty not for any crimes that were committed before, not for what they went to prison for, but they just wanted amnesty for anything that happened during the riots. And they were really scared that they would all be tried together. So they're all going to be tried for murder. They're all going to be tried for destruction of property. They're all going to be tried for kidnapping. All these things that they could be tried for, and, and nobody knew who did what. So they were scared, okay, we're just going to try all of you. And some people had, like one of the guys in the film, had a sentence of 25 to life. You know, he's already in, in jail for 25 years at a minimum. And then he thinks, okay, now they're going to add more on there. No, we have to have amnesty. And that's what the whole thing hinged on, the amnesty for anything they did during the rebellion. I wanted to ask you about this idea of inevitability. And there's really two parts to this. One is, was it inevitable that there be an uprising at Attica, given the conditions at the prison and given the fact that the prisoners had become politically activated? The second part is, was it inevitable that it end the way it did in terms of the police violently taking over the yard. Okay, so these are just my guesses. I don't know. But, but I think that it was inevitable 
that the rebellion took place unless the prison had reformed or did reform it and there was nothing to reform it. They had already gone to the, the powers that be and tried to voice complaints. The actual inciting incidents, you know, it wasn't that abnormal. There was a fight and then the guys were dragged out to detention and the prisoners just said, we had enough. Okay, enough. It was inevitable. It wasn't like that something major happened and, and it made it happen. The retaking, I don't think was inevitable at all. I don't think that had to happen at all. The observers are really clear in the film that they called Rockefeller up and said, please just come to Attica. You don't have to go in. We're not asking you to go into prison. Just if you walked out in the parking lot and showed some concern, this thing could probably end. The prisoners were tired. They were hungry. It had started to rain and get cold and they were sleeping in the mud and they wanted to get back. So even after Quinn dies and amnesty is seemingly off the table and the prisoners are feeling like we must have amnesty, there still was a way out. There were a thousand to twelve hundred people out there in the yard, and 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 they thought that they they would be prosecuted altogether. I just did a panel with Louis Steele, who's one of the observers, and, and is a lawyer, and and, and said so we just said okay, we'll investigate these things, and and if we find out who actually did the murder, then you know they will have to be prosecuted. But we will not prosecute everybody. We'll not prosecute people randomly if we don't know who did certain acts. I think that was a possibility. I certainly don't think that what happened had to happen that way. No. Even if you didn't send in the highway patrol and former and, and, and prison guards and you just let the National Guard take care of it, you know, who were trained in those kind of situations and not open fire in a yard where you shot tear gas and there's so much smoke that you can't even see who you're shooting. And there was no plan. We have unlimited force. They don't have guns. And so we're going to win. So let's just go in and start shooting. Hey, that's a good idea. I'm surprised the guards didn't just shoot each other because they were just shooting. So no, that it didn't have to happen that way. I wanted to take us to the last day, day five. Day five is probably more important than all the other parts of the story put together. So much of Attica happens on day five. Can you talk about, from your perspective, the creative challenges of telling the story of day five? Day five was really about like going to the limit, but not going overboard. We could have kept on going. We could have kept on going for a long time. Besides everything else, you know, all the wounded and the dead were left out in the sun for hours and hours and hours. There was no medical plan. You're going to get some people shot. What's the plan to take care of them? There was no plan to take care of them. And what they did was they, they took the prison guards who were wounded or you know, dead out first, and they left the inmates to just you know suffer. What we had to do was make it as bad as it was, you know, make you understand that it's bad as it was, but hopefully not tip it over to where you get mad at Stanley, you know, and, and, and want to go kill him. Like, oh man, you know, you rubbed our faces in it. Because when people are watching, especially watching in a theater, pretty much they're glued to their seat. I mean, you can get up and walk, push past everybody else in the row and run out of the theater, but nobody pretty much does that. So we wanted to give you a sense of how horrible it was. But we didn't want to feel like we were rubbing your face in it. This stuff happened in phases. And we really wanted to make you understand that this stuff happened in different phases. At first, they drop the tear gas. Then they go and they just shoot everybody. 
Then they pick out certain people like LD and they kill them. Then they made them crawl through the tree. Then they stripped them naked. Then they, you know, and we just wanted to, to, to make that it was very clear. I remember talking to the composer, Tom Phillips, you know, and say that we want to make these pieces distinct, all these different pieces of uh, uh, what happened, because it that's what it was. And then they did this and then they, you know, like... Would it just stop? As one of the prisoners says, they had taken over the prison. They now had control, but they didn't stop. One of the hallmarks for me of a Stanley Nelson film is that not only do you take a 360 degree look at historical events, but I feel like you bring a different lens to these events. For an example, with Black Panther's Vanguard of a Revolution, Maybe for the first time, a filmmaker really framed the Panther's story as one in which the party was led by Black women in many ways. The poster for Black Panthers has a, a woman Panther in the foreground and a male in the background. What do you think you put in the foreground of Attica that maybe hadn't existed before or with the same emphasis. We tell the story largely from the, the prisoner's point of view. That's the story that, that we were really interested in. And we let them tell the story. You see them telling the story. And, and we don't talk about this a lot. We see their faces. We just see those faces. And those faces are amazing. And inside the prison and, and, and the interviews, you see how largely they were Black and, and Latinx. And we tell their story. We conceived the film. We were going to interview some historians. And we actually interviewed one historian. And, you know, we did an assembly of some scenes and we had him in and it was like, it just didn't work. It didn't work with, you know, him saying stuff that he had read and studied and Akil and, and Arthur and, and Al Victory and those guys talking about what it felt like, smelled like, and how just to be there. And so we decided, you know, there's a film that we had to do not only without narration, but, but without historians. You made a film earlier this year with Marco Williams called Tulsa Burning about the 1921 Tulsa massacre. We interviewed Marco for the podcast. Tulsa was 100 years ago. Attica was 50 years ago. What is the connection between these events and American history? I'll take the simple way, you know, they're both massacres. They're both massacres, largely of Black folks without any care, without the Black people aren't thought as, as equally human as the white folks. Just horrible tragedies. And more and more, I think people are recognizing that's the case 100 years ago, that's the case 50 years ago, that's the case now. For whatever reason, I don't understand it, but a, a large segment of the white population cannot accept Black people as fully human. Joe Heath, the lawyer, he says 70% of the prisoners were black and brown and the town and the guards are essentially all white. The guards are all white and the guards were either explicitly racist or they had simply no understanding of the background, the culture, where these prisoners came from, which was largely New York City. What does that say about the State of the Union as it relates to racism in 1971? This is in 19... 1901 or 1921. It's 1971. That's one of the things that, that, that is shocking, again, the casual racism. But I think we forget, we say New York, and we forget how racist it quickly becomes and how white and how rural upstate New York can be. This 250 miles from New York, that's dairy country, and, and it's very rural, and you may as well be in Alabama. Tracy Curry, the co-director, you know, went back 
there to shoot the uh, drone stuff that we, we shot out of the prison and some other stuff. They called the cops on her like three times a day when they were there. That She got cursed out. The Confederate flags, Trump flags all over the place. You're in, you know, Alabama. It hasn't changed that much from 71, which I guess w- wouldn't change so much from 21 or so. Or 1871, they're still the same. It's hard to understand the kind of outright racism and hate. You can say there's not an understanding, but I I think that in Attica Prison, there was no attempt to understand. You know, as Arthur Harrison said, they rule by fear. That was the way they ruled. You can't rule by fear and understand at the same time. If you had to pick one thing, what's one thing you want the audience to take away from the experience of watching Attica? It's hard to pick one thing. I don't make you know films for, for to pick one thing, but the humanity of the people in in prison and the fact that today the prison system is balanced by the fact that people in Attica and places like it are, are probably getting more than one roll of toilet paper a month. But there's two million people in prison in the United States. It's more people in prison than anywhere in the history of the world. Two million people will be like that guy who says, you know, it's the first time I went out and seen the night sky in 22 years. Tonight, too many people go to bed and they will not see the night sky. I think that makes it crystal clear. And I think your film really does a great job of looking back and looking at where we are today in subtle ways as well. What are you working on next? We're working on a ton of things. Uh, We're working on an hour film on Frederick Douglass and an hour film on uh, Harriet Tubman, uh, both from Maryland Public TV. We're almost done with that. We're doing seven shorts for MTV networks uh, about African-American history and and the history that you don't know about African-Americans. The very first one is, is done called Token of a Great Day, and it's about lynching postcards. And it's getting a lot of play. It's a beautiful film about one of the things that we don't know about African-American history is that at lynchings, uh, photographers would take pictures and then sell them as postcards. And white people would mail them to their relatives. And it was so common a practice that the that Postal Service had to ban the lynching postcards from being sent in the mail. But also one of the great things is that the NAACP under W.E.B. Du Bois then used the postcards to help cement its campaign against lynching and and use the postcards in a completely different way than the way that they were made. I look forward to seeing that. Thank you so much, Stanley. Congratulations on the film. And it's, it's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much, Ken. It's great to see you again. Hopefully we get to see each other in person. Can you give us a a hidden gem, a documentary that you feel maybe doesn't get the attention it deserves, but something that you'd like to recommend to people? There's so many. I love a doc that came out last year through the night that was done um, by Lodi Limbaugh, who you know, I happened to work with, but it was a beautiful film and uh, very different from the films I make. An observational film about a 24-hour daycare center, night care center, child care center in the Upper Bronx. Through the will of a husband and wife team, stays open 24 hours a day. You know, we don't think about that, but so many women have to work at night now and they they need child care bring your kids there anytime and, and pick them up anytime and they're, they're well taken care of and they take care of with love and all that comes through with the food so i think that was a really good job.